You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Welcome to the show, everyone. This week, I'm lucky to be joined by Arnold Hirschhorn, who happens to be the president of the North American Lewis Carroll Society. I bet you didn't know that there was a Lewis Carroll Society. Matter of fact, there is many of them, which we're going to talk about. He's the perfect guest. He's an Alice academic and an expert in the world of Wonderland illustrations. And I, I can't wait to talk to him about some of my favorite Alice-inspired artists. So let's tumble down the rabbit hole with Arnold. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts. You're currently the president of the Lewis Carroll Society North America? That's correct. Okay, great, because I'm, uh, I'm really interested in the Lewis Carroll Society. I, as you know, have written these Looking Glass Wars books, and part of my metafiction was some confrontations with Lewis Carroll Society members when I was first uh, publishing my book in the UK. I, um, I created a story. I was invited onto the BBC to talk about Alice and why I decided to write it. And there was a little controversy because I'm an American rewriting it. And it was even worse that I was a movie producer. So uh, when I got on the show, just 
seat of my pants, said, oh, yeah, there was all these Lewis Carroll Society members at the airport protesting, and they had placards with off with Frank Bedore's head. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be interviewing the president of the Lewis Carroll Society. I got to give that story up to start this. <laughs> well, was, but that was the UK Society, or was that the North American Society? <laughs> I didn't know that there were multiple... Uh, society. So maybe you could start by filling our listeners in on that there are various societies and how it was formed and uh, your involvement and what the uh, mandate is. So the uh, Lewis Carroll Society in North America, that's the one that I'm president of, um, started 50 years ago. This is our 50th anniversary year. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, it's great. The basic purpose is to advance the study and interest in any of the works by Lewis Carroll, whether they are mathematical works, logical works, whether it's games, puzzles, of course, the Alice books, uh, Hunting of the Snark, Phantasmagoria, anything. And it could be any aspect. It can be uh, the literature itself. It can be uh, illustration, music, movies, uh, plays. The, the whole gamut, it, it's in any form that, and of course, Lewis Carroll was so dominant in, in some, even within his lifetime, he was uh, having theatrical productions being made. So all of that is, is really part of our remit as, as we think of it. Uh, the Lewis Carroll Society uh, in the UK, which is known as the Lewis Carroll Society, <laughs> um, they, they continue um, to uh, do their work. There are also societies. Uh, there's one now in Brazil. There's one in the Netherlands. There's one in Japan. So we're all loosely affiliated in our interest. But the Lewis Carroll Society in North America is probably the one with the greatest reach and the most international membership. It really extends beyond North America. We have about 10 to 15, 20% of our members are actually outside of North America. And how many members do you have? And then what do the members do uh, in terms of interacting with all of this work? Because it's obviously it's in pop culture across you know, so many mediums, it's so deeply seated, you could spend your life studying and trying to keep up with it and not even scratch the surface, I imagine. Um, so what are the members pro mostly interested in? So a combination of things. One, we have a journal that comes out two times a year. It's the Night Letter is the name of it. And that is pretty extensive. It is everything from scholarly articles to just fun facts and latest occurrences found in, in popular culture, whether it's a political cartoon or whether it's a quote. Um, it includes uh, information about newly published editions, uh, illustrated editions typically, where regardless of where they were published anywhere in the world. So that's one element of our educational programming. The other is we run two conferences per year, one virtual, one in person. The last one was in Cleveland in this past September. We're looking to hold another one in the fall of 2024 as a celebration of our anniversary. And those topics can be a very wide range. Again, they run from the, uh, you don't have to be a scholar at all and just have a 
general interest in Alice. Um, so this last time there were people discussing Alice in popular music and rock music. We had people discussing Alice in dance, Alice in literature, uh, Alice in Japan. Mm-hmm. So uh, translation, ed- translated editions. So those tend to uh, be a fairly wide gamut. And then we run typically about eight to 10 virtual programs throughout the year. And those are, it can be an illustrator discussing a work in progress or a recently illustrated book. It can be Alice in the Movies. Uh, Those, again, run that whole range. And it is not just Alice related. Uh, And then we also have collectors talking about their collections and latest acquisitions and latest things that they found for the first time. That seems like would be a big section of the uh, membership because there is so much to collect. There's so many interesting books. I have a book that I collected, and I'm not a collector, but I'm going to put it up and see if you've ever seen this book. Yes, absolutely. I know it well. <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> I, I, I was fascinated with the, uh, with the lyrics, and I mean, I think it was 1921. The art is amazing. Um, yes. But... Uh, yeah, I picked that up at at some. I, I think there was an auction somewhere. I think it was the first and only uh, time I've competed for a piece of uh, Lewis Carroll's you know, life. So you know yeah, that you know that well because you've collected that book. Well, both I I have a copy of it sitting over there on my <laughs> shelves. Um, I actually have rep- both the, that version that which is the original as well as a couple of reprinted versions. Um, there's a delightful illustration of beautiful soup in that. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Soup bowl has, yes. has long pairs of long pair of legs. Yes, I um, love that image. Love it. Yeah, and and he's he's really a full uh, card, uh, brilliant illustrator. But uh, you know that is, I also have sheet music, original sheet music from the early 20th century. Irving Berlin composed three different Alice in Wonderland songs. I have two out of the three. And, and so there's a, that, that whole wide range of things. My interest evolved. It started, uh, I was an English major in college. So my interest started from the literature side and from the text. But more and more, it gravitated towards the illustration. Mm. It's by far the most illustrated, the the Alice books in particular, are the most illustrated books uh, of fiction in the world. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many remarkable, remarkable facts. I I mean, that it's the second most quoted literary works in the world behind the Bible. I think there's more foreign language books than Harry Potter, like twice Harry Potter. Uh, I didn't even know. I think it's 175 or 190 countries. I didn't. I didn't know right. there was that many countries. That's remarkable. Well, it's, it's, it's language. It's languages and and dialects as well. Okay, because dialects. Sometimes, okay. Sometimes it can be two or three dialects from the same country. It could be like Catalan in Spain as well as in Spanish, um, and that that's you know it, or or multiple dialects in Chinese. Now, is there somebody that collects everything that's coming out so that you have an archive? So you brought up political cartoons, and during the uh, Trump administration, there was a 
massive use of Alice in Wonderland to describe the functionality of the government and down the rabbit hole and off with your head and through the looking glass and uh, was used, I mean, uh, often and to great comic. Yes, that was hilarious. To great comedic effect. So um, does somebody collect those things or are they just spoken, talked about in these conferences? It's all individual collectors. Um, there's no, you know, there are some institutions certainly that collect, um, but I don't think that any institution by any means has comprehensive collections, meaning exhaustive, what we would call completist okay. collection. <laughs> and so uh, there are certainly, I won't name names on this because they may, <laughs> may or may not want their names named, but I am not a completist collector. Um, a completist, there were, oh, hundreds uh, published by the original publisher, Macmillan. Mm -hmm. And so you have the first thousand, the first 2,000, then you have the 10,000, mm -hmm. the 50,000. There are people who collect all of those. Wow. Every single one of them. I do not. Wow. To me, to me, if I have one good copy of Tenniel, it's enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I, I use my collection for research mm -hmm. and for personal interest. Right. And so I'm not necessarily trying to collect a perfect copy of a first edition of something. I want representative illustrations from that illustrator. And I want something that I can also afford. Because some of these things can go literally into the millions of dollars. Many of them will go into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that is not the sort of collection I personally kind of try to build. And then the institutional collections, there are certainly some very major collections in not just the British Library, but the, in North America, um, University of Texas, uh, New York University, University of Toronto. Um, those are just two. They're probably about... 20 I could rattle off that have significant collections, the Morgan Library in New York, Harvard. But very often they stopped collecting at a certain point. They're not necessarily collecting late 20th century, early 21st century. I, because I'm interested in illustration and so many of these illustrators have come out and continue to come out now, uh, trying to keep up with all of the new ones that are coming out is just impossible. Yeah, yeah, that must be very, very challenging. Um, it would be amazing to have an institution that collects everything that they can find in pop culture. Uh, I recently wrote a blog because my daughter loves Taylor Swift, and I wrote a blog about her Wonderland song, which I did not realize there was such a thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, suddenly I was a very cool dad for 24 hours. Um, <laughs> uh, but there's so much out there, and it's really interesting. And visually it's really interesting, whether it's the albums or, as you said, the illustrations or photographs of gardens. I mean, there is just that these cartoons I find terrific. It'd be great to have, you know, the movie posters. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and um, not just movie posters, but there are also pop culture posters from theatrical productions, from concerts, from um, movies. So there are people who collect. Yeah, and there a lot of people are, like mine is more of a specialized collection. 
there are people who collect just the posters. There are people mm. who collect sculptures, mm. who collect just figurines, mm. uh, just soft sculpture, not just sculpture, but soft sculpture. So you get you get this wide variety of people who have very varying interests who are all joined together by sharing some element of interest in the works of Lewis Carroll. I'm I'm very interested in doing a documentary about Alice, why Alice is a muse for so many artists. And, you know, like Taylor Swift and the Wachowski brothers who did Matrix and, you know, some of the more pop culture aspects of Alice in Wonderland and use that to bring people into this deeper Lewis Carroll world and start to show them things like, look at Guinness beer used Alice for years and years and years. Why? Why is Alice, and this is part of the the podcast, is why does Alice last? What is it about Alice that we keep reinventing her to reflect our contemporary world? Well, Alice herself, and and, and just on the Guinness point, um, the interesting thing is Guinness adopted Alice because they were it was really being used for the health benefits of beer. It was, <laughs> these were they were selling sending yeah. these things to doctors um, as, yeah. as each year, to, and then it was just an amusing way of yeah and. Obviously, when it started in the 1930s and through the 1960s, when they were doing it, they were doing it in a way that uh, everybody would know what the cultural reference was. Right. But, it, but Alice herself is essentially a cipher. Mm. You know, Alice, Alice is not the main character. All the other characters are the main. Now, all of these things are getting absorbed through Alice and she's learning as she's going along. So she makes for the perfect foil for any number of characters um, who come into her life and then leave her life um, in the next episode, which is essentially usually the next chapter. But there are so many ways of interpreting so much of the text. There are so many ways of visually representing Alice. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, the Disney character is to some people more common than the Tenniel mm. version of it. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And they have no idea that Disney's was not the first movie that was created. Right. Um, that there had been what, 50 years of Alice movie making before um, Disney showed up on the scene and Disney yeah. would have done it himself earlier, but he dropped the project and mm -hmm. uh, it up later. So there are all of those threads that keep coming through, but it is, there's so much ambiguity in the story. The scenes are not plotted out in any particular, you could, you could move the chapters in a different order, not so much in Through the Looking Glass, but certainly in Wonderland. You could change the order if you were reading it to a child who never had read the books before. The child would have no idea what order you're reading them in. Right. Because she doesn't, except at the very beginning of the chapter, or and then Alice entered mm -hmm. or Alice left, the rest of, of it is, you know, there's, there's no logical sequence to it. There's no description of the backgrounds. There's no description of 
any of the things, most of the things on the table in the Mad Tea Party, they're not mentioned at all. So that gives, whether it's a filmmaker or whether it's an illustrator, it gives them license to make it up as they go along. Well, to your point, um, you know, it, until uh, Tim Burton came along, you know, the all the other adaptations have had the flaw of being episodic and trying to give agency to Alice. And one of the reasons I wrote my novels was to give her that agency so that she's you know, she meets Lewis Carroll. She doesn't, he doesn't believe her story, but ultimately she is destined and ultimately it's her agency. And then she moves through enough of a plot that it it feels more contemporary. Um, You know, there was more agency in The Wizard of Oz for Dorothy than uh, for Alice because she had a very specific goal and you knew where she was trying to get and there was obstacles along the way and those obstacles became friends and then they helped her in the end. So, um, I, I do think that's really interesting. What you're saying is that as a siphon, she allows all the other characters and you can imbue with those characters so many, op- so many creative choices. And I think that's probably a reason, a really strong reason why she's such an amazing muse for so many creators. Well, and I think that that's the difference also between Wonderland and Looking Glass. I've often described it as Wonderland is a vertical tale. Alice falls down a rabbit hole and then proceeds through things without any rhyme or reason. Um, her conversation with the Cheshire cat, mm-hmm. you know, where should I go? Mm-hmm. You know, you go any way you want. If you don't know where you're going, any route will take you there. Whereas Looking Glass is a very horizontal tale. It is, Alice has an objective. She wants to get from one end of the chessboard to the other end of the chessboard um, so that she can be crowned queen. And along the way, she's going to meet people who will, you know, she hopes, will help her along the way. And most of them in Looking Glass do help her. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Wonderland, they don't really, many of them don't care. <laughs> they have <laughs> the March Hare, you know, they're living their own life there. They're, they're really not going to uh, do very much to help. And some of the Looking Glass ones don't either. Tweedledum and Tweedledee are not the most helpful characters in the world. Um, well, let me ask you something, um, because I think that is very helpful in terms of breaking down the two books. Uh, I didn't think of it that way. Uh, that's really interesting. But it seems like it's pretty common that there's two camps uh, in interpretation. There's the whimsical fantasy dream aspect of the text that people take away. And then there is the surreal nightmare uh, in, the, in, the, in the illogical and the kind of self-inflicted insanity that happens in the book. Do you fall into either of those camps or is there another camp as a scholar that you look at the works from? It's an interesting question. I, I kind of, I think the difference that you're, you're speaking to in part is, is this an adult book for adults or is this a book for children? The first part of what you said to me is more the children's book which can be appreciated by children at a certain level, but 
even in Victorian times, there were going to be any number of references in the text that no child was going to really pick up on. To me, the books are, in essence, adult tales. And to really appreciate the text, you really do need to be an adult, not just to understand the cultural references of Carol's time, but to understand the life experiences. So when I was, uh, I used to be a university administrator. When I was a university administrator, I would, would say to people, just read Alice in Wonderland and you'll know everything you need to know about management. Because <laughs> every, every chapter will teach you, and it, sometimes every paragraph will teach you something that you need to know about how to manage in a situation, how to get yourself extricated, how to deal with conflict management. So, so that part of the, t- I probably lean more towards your second category than I do t- towards the first for that reason. And I do think that very importantly, I read many, many years ago that one needs to read Cervantes's Don Quixote as a teen, as a young adult, and in old age, mm-hmm. because you will, you will understand and read things into it and see things differently at different ages in your life. And I think the Alice books are very much like that. You come to appreciate different things. And even those of us who have read the text many times and you know can recite whole passages still will, will reread it or reread a, a chapter or reread one of the poems. And it's kind of like, wow, never saw that before. There's so much to distill in every one of those chapters in, in each one of the poems that I think that it's, that's why it's such a brilliant work. It's also one of the things, things that I think separates it from Oz. I agree with that. And um, I read it to my daughter when she was eight or nine and, you know, she thought it was very funny and weird. Uh, and, uh, but during Carol's time, there probably, certainly there's not all of the categories of publishing that we have now. He wasn't writing for middle grade or YA or, <laughs> you know, so what was he writing for? What, what did, do you think he had an audience or was this just the story? Because I know it's very satirical of his era and he referenced the government a lot. He references, he makes fun of um, of the education, of the memorizing, and he's doing a lot of that, which I think is really interesting. Um, but but he yet was writing for the and telling the story to these young kids. So, what do you think he was thinking in terms of how's my audience going to take this? So, originally he had an audience of Alice and her sisters, and himself. He was he was writing this to amuse them. But he was also writing it to amuse himself, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was not really thinking about publishing it when he when he first told the tales and when he first set down the manuscript and gave it to uh, Alice Little. He was, he, you know, she was amused by the stories. She asked him to write them down. He wrote them down. He illustrated them. And originally, I think he thought, that's it. I'm done. Um, and then other people read it and they said, you really should publish this. 
And of course, one of the key elements of the Alice books is they were the first books that were really not, they were really did not speak down to children. They were not moralistic tales. Right. This was Adventures in Wonderland. Um, and it was quite, I think that was intentional. I think that's, that's what he was after for his audience to speak to children as if they are young adults, not to speak to children as they are little children. And, you know, whether Alice herself reread the books later in life and saw things, we probably don't know. But I think that certainly other people and generations of people, I have a, a granddaughter who's five years old, and I brought her, uh, a, a, it was, a copy of, I think I brought her Looking Glass. It might have been Wonderland. I honestly can't remember. Now, she can look through the pictures. You know, it's the classic of what's the use of a book uh, without pictures. <laughs> um, and I was giving her the very short version. We were not reading through the text at this point. It was just kind of like, what's happening on this page and this page? And this was the five-minute version of Alice for a five-year-old. Right, right. Um, but, you know, within a few, but but then, at, you know, after I left, her parents told me, yeah, she, she, she went back to the book and she was spending a long time looking at the pictures. Every audience will appreciate, appreciate it looking for different things. And I think yeah. that's the book. Yeah, I, uh, I started with a pop-up book uh, you know, one of the and 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 it does all the you know. So it was magical just from the the very beginning of it. I think it was the first pop up book my daughter had ever seen. So you turn a page and a, a, pass, a palace uh, shows up or a character shows up. So um, you know, any way to engage kids visually and then synopsizing and you know using your voice uh, because those things uh, th th they stick with them. Uh, and then Absolutely. and then they'll they'll come back to it, as you suggested uh, later in life. I wonder um, the the original manuscript with uh, Lewis Carroll's drawings is that must be very expensive. Is there such a is there a couple? It, it's unique. There's only one copy of it. Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah. It's been republished. It, it's been their facsimile editions. And, but the original is in the British Library. Okay. Um, and um, the, unfortunately, the British Library recently had a cyber attack. And so you cannot currently access it online, oh. but, but they normally have that available online as well. Um, and the, on the very last page, there was a photograph of Alice Little and a, kind of an oval-sized picture of her. And underneath that, he had originally drawn a picture of her. And for decades, people had no idea that the drawing existed. Hmm. And that, then it was finally, they finally realized it. And so now you can see both the original drawing and see the picture of this six-year-old girl. Just so um, the listeners um, realize, the book was originally called Alice's Adventures in the Underground? Uh, Right. Yeah, Alice, Alice, uh, yes, Alice Underground. Alice Underground. And that's the book we're speaking of. Is it a book that uh, you can 
just touch there? I'm, I imagine not. Um, or you not at the British, you, um, you know. At the British Museum, a, yeah. Yeah, somebody would have to have a lot of scholarly credentials. Yeah. Could you do that? But, do you have enough scholarly credentials no, to pull? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think if I walked in and said, by the way, I just want to touch this. Um, I just want to know, flip a few funny. pages. <laughs> you know, the first time I, I, I went to the British Library, it was the British Library and the British Museum were in the same building. Mm. And you could still touch the Rosetta Stone. Oh, <laughs> which I always, you know, you can't do that anymore, no. fortunately. But no. I always wondered. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know that you're son of a photographer, or that you're a photographer, and your kids are one's an editor and one's an illustrator. Correct. So uh, I am the son of a photographer. Okay. One of my sons is a film editor and uh, photographer. And my other son is an illustrator. He, he teaches um, at, at the university level. Just tell me about your son, who's the film editor. What sort of projects does he work on? Um, typically commercial projects. Mm -hmm. Started out started out in stand-up comedy. Oh, wow. Uh, did that for 10 years. Wow. Um, he published, actually published a Alice street photography uh, in New York, Alice in Manhattan. Um, published an edition oh. uh, of his photography with using quotes from Alice. Oh, I want to uh, include that. Oh, I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> I definitely want to include that. Um, and still available. And then my other, uh, my other son does um, the illustrator. He does freelance illustration, but he also teaches. Uh, he's a professor of illustration at the University of Utah. Oh, I was. Uh, that's where I went to school. What's his name? Michael Hershon. And your son, who, your other son? The one who did the book and yes. film editing, that's Daniel Hershon. Daniel. And is your book, Alice in the World of Wonderlands, is that available? Um, we are about to, the, we have two editions. There's a deluxe edition and a trade edition, um, standard edition. We're about to put that announcement out within the next week, I hope. Um, okay, well, so let's, when you put... It's well, actually it's actually available right now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. I could send you a link, um, but we have not sent out the official press release yet. So you would be well-equipped to share with listeners Lewis Carroll and his early photography, which would be considered cutting-edge by today's standards in terms of the infancy, you know, when he first started. Um, so what do you think? I don't know if many people realize that he, I mean, took photo, I mean, took photos of Alice Little and some of his sisters, but he had a lot of interesting techniques with his photography that were... He, of course, at, at the time in, in days that he was doing photography, they had to sit very still mm. for a longer period of time just for the exposure to be able to take. So he used to costume more girls, but girls and boys. Um, he do, did adult photography. Um, it was nearly very heavily portraiture. It was not always, um, but he but he would enact scenes. There's a picture of Alice as a little beggar girl in mm. a beggar costume. And he would have these typically painted backdrops um, that he would use. But he had... Um, 
both pictures of people who were prominent at the time. Ellen Terry was an actress, for example. He has pictures of Ellen Terry, as well as he had picture photographs of um, many, many that were children. They were all actually published in, I think it was the 90s, might have been the 80s, the discovery of um, four nude photographs of children, which created quite the stir, which would then, these were all colorized, painted over in color. So yeah, he, he experimented quite a bit. And then when he lost interest, he just dropped it entirely. Hmm. He, um, he just stopped at, you know, probably around the 18, I, this I'm not sure of, but probably in around the 1880s. He just stopped doing photography entirely. The photograph that you reference as the uh, beggar girl, uh, Will Brooker, the yes. author who wrote Alice's Adventures, um, uh, Lewis Carroll in Pop Culture, uh, which is a terrific book, by the way. Um, yeah. He has that photograph on the cover, and it's a yes. remarkable photograph. It's, I mean, given when it was taken, and it's it's so vibrant, and com she comes to life, and and uh, his compos his composition was excellent. He he knew exactly how to pose um, whoever he was taking the photograph of, it, and sometimes it would be two or three picture people in the same picture. Um, like two or three children, for example, might be in the same picture. And he would very elegantly pose these um, mise-en-scenes for um, his audience, for, for that audience. And that audience was typically the family. Uh, he was not, he was not setting up a shop. And he was, he was not a portrait photographer mm -hmm. by trade. He was, um, nor was he trying to sell these as work, works of art. If you try and buy them now, they're expensive works of art, but um, at the time he was he was doing this basically for his own enjoyment. Interestingly, so far in our conversation, we have only referenced him as his pen name, Lewis Carroll, and not Charles Dodgson. Um, in your experience, in terms of just randomly speaking with folks about Lewis Carroll, and they ask you questions at a dinner table. People know Charles Dodgson. If you started the conversation by saying Charles Dodgson and blah, 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 um, out of curiosity? Probably not. I mean, I can start a conversation, say something about Lewis Carroll, and I will have. Exactly. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think unless you're, unless I'm speaking with a mathematician probably, <laughs> or a logician, probably not. Um, so uh, most people who know Carol's work reasonable, you know, yeah. have some reasonable knowledge of him. Probably if you said the name, they would, they would recognize it, but not necessarily make the immediate association. It's just so interesting that his name has not become more prominent with all of the Alice out there, that it's always been Lewis Carroll and that there hasn't been a little bit more of a connection. I, I, uh, because in in my conversations, nobody seems to know who Charles Dodgson is until, you know, unless they're a big fan of his, you know, of his work or something. So, but casually, you know, my, my certainly my kids well, don't know. Right, and it, that was intentional on his part too. He he wanted to keep his professional life as an Oxford don teaching mathematics and logic separate from his creative fictional fictional characters and so 
you know, especially as he, once Alice came out, people started to know that this is the Oxford Don is Lewis Carroll, but he continued to publish the books, not under his real name. He continued to publish under his pseudonym. And that was intentional. He, you know, he had two parts of his life and he wanted to keep them apart. But, and, but that is, I mean, it's interesting that it's continued. I mean, there's been a number of documentaries. There's a lot of novels or books about him, biographies, but it, hasn't found any kind of pulp cultural reference. Um, I, I just, it's just curious that that hasn't happened given the depth. Yeah. I, I think the, the closest it comes to a pulp, pop culture reference is the photographs of him, whether it's his self portrait or whether it is, um, whether there are portraits taken of him. If you, if you showed a picture of him, um, somebody might say, um, I know who that is mm. and recognize right. him, but more likely they would say, I recognize him as Dodson. I don't recognize him as, I, I recognize him as Carol. Yeah. I don't recognize him necessarily as Dodson. Okay. So here's a question for you. Uh, you have, you love these different illustrations. And if you had to choose one illustration, and that's all one illustrated book, and that's all you could have in that big library of yours. I'll tell you mine, and then you can tell me yours. Mine okay. would be Ralph Steadman. I absolutely love Ralph Steadman's, mm. um, and it's the it's the it's the lines, it's the kind of contemporary, it's the '60s vibe, it's it's it, it it it's that it's not a surreal nightmare, it's a surreal world, and um, I I just I just absolutely love his uh, his Alice book. How about you? So I was afraid you were going to ask this question. Oh, you were. Yeah, really? It just popped into my head. I didn't, I didn't, I thought, oh, well, that's, I mean, he's a scholar. This is a, I mean, like, you know, let's break it up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's kind of like, if you could only choose one, it's, this, okay. this is, this is not an easy choice. I I do love Stedman's illustrations. I love um, Barry Mosher's illustrations. Yes, yes, yes. I love John Vernon Lord's illustrations. All for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they worked in three different uh, media. They worked in three different formats. Uh, they're all brilliant. If I had to pick one, absolutely had to pick one. Yes, pick one who might not necessarily be well known. Um, Vili Pagani was an illustrator in the um, early to mid twentieth century. He did in nineteen twenty nine, I believe it is. He did a flapper Alice. This was Alice oh. done as, a, and it is absolutely delightful. It's just brilliant work. And the, one of the reasons I like it so much is when I started collecting and I was leaving one of my places of employment to take another job, this, the Pagani edition was given to me as a get, as a going away gift. Mm. And I've always mm. treasured. And there are, and it's kind of funny because there were multiple editions published at the same time. There was a deluxe edition. There was more of a trade edition. And one of the things that's different about the trade edition is, that, and the deluxe edition does not have this, ironically, is there are color end papers. The rest of it, all in the interior is all black and white line drawings. 
the the um, end papers are this montage, this collage of different scenes, all in color, and it's just each illustration. There's just so much to look at. There's so many things that he was the first one to do it, and that's really one of the things I look at in my scholarly interest is who was the first illustrator who did something different mm. with a scene with a character. And thank you for taking a chance and naming your one, <laughs> your, your <laughs> one artist. I know that must be really hard. Um, There's another artist I should just mention briefly, um, Jean-Jacques Sempe, who most people know from his New Yorker car, uh, covers. Oh. Uh, um, he published an edition in French, never came out in English, which is a real shame. Hmm. Uh, in 1961, and just delightful, delightful. Um, one one illustration per chapter, but each one's a gem. You know, one of the things I point out is we've mentioned a few times Alice falling down the rabbit hole. Carol in his manuscript has no picture of Alice falling down the rabbit hole. John Tenniel has no illustration of Alice falling down the rabbit hole. It's not until one of the early American pirated editions that somebody actually illustrates that scene. But everybody is sure that they've seen it before. <laughs> um, and in fact, <laughs> you haven't because right, it took right. a while before that showed up, 1898 to be, to be exact. Um, so those are the sorts of things that I look for is, sometimes it's in the detail. Um, that's one of the things I like about John Vernon Lord's illustrations is there's just so much to, to look at in those illustrations. There's a Russian illustrator who I absolutely think she's 21st century, absolutely brilliant. Who's that? Brilliant. Who's that? Uh, Ksenia Lavrova is her name. It's hard to come by her editions in the United States. You pretty much have to order them from abroad. I, I actually picked it up in Russia um, in a trip um, a while ago, but just the color illustrations and the level of detail you, you could sit you could sit for an hour looking at one illustration and not see it all that's how brilliant it is that's terrific well definitely i'm going to check that out and i'm really going to check out alice as a flapper girl that sounds there were two, there were two flapper alices by the way oh okay uh, Kim henderson is the other one much inferior mm. bonnie is the one you you really want to uh P-O-G-A-N-Y is where he, he was a Hungarian. And I liked, um, Barry, you mentioned Barry Moser as well, um, his, his art. And I think he won, I think he won an award for his yes. Alice book um, in the, sometime in the 80s. Um, yes. So it seems that every generation reinterprets Alice. So what do you think? In the 60s, you know, there was sort of the psychedelic aspects of it because of the Beatles and the uh, Jefferson Airplanes, you know, White Rabbit. And, and you know, the 80s, the 90s, there's the whole tech side of it with, um, with uh, the Matrix. And um, what, do you, what, what do you attribute that to, um, this, this repurposing of Alice to reflect you know, day-to-day -day life. And, and if, what, what are we, what's Alice doing today? So I, I think a lot of 
what you're speaking to, why it happens is it's the amusement of the, il the, the illustrator amusing herself or himself, <laughs> as well as um, introducing something that is generational. The fashion, for example. Mm -hmm. How does fashion change? And if I'm looking at a tenual illustration in the 21st century, these fashions don't mean anything to anybody. Right. And or the Pagani in the 20s, they, it would be in the bobbed hair and the flapper dress and those sorts of things would be something that would be very different for that generation. So some of it is speaking to cultural reference in fashion, in the backgrounds, in, in what's on the table. I've threatened, I, one of the things I collect is teapots, has no relation to the Mad Tea Party. Uh, I've threatened to do a study of just the shapes of teapots in different illustrations. <laughs> um, but I think when you start looking at that, that's what starts to tell you why things change. Mm. Uh, it's, it's they want to bring something new to it. They want to bring something interesting to it. They want to bring out some element of the story that nobody had brought out before. And they want to do it in a contemporary way. So there are, for example, a lot of graphic novels mm -hmm. uh, and an increasing number of graphic novels. We talked a little bit about the translations, but if you look at the illustrations that come out of other countries, even in the 20th century and certainly in the 21st century, the dress is can be very, very different. The portrayal of how the characters look, uh, if you look at a Japanese or a Chinese illustration, or a Russian illustration, they're very different than a French or a German or an English, which is very different from an American right. or a Latin American illustration. So some of why it gets reinterpreted in illustration is just to do that, mm -hmm. is to make it relevant to the culture, the indigenous culture. One of the things I've looked at is which illustrators got republished in a country other than their own and which ones never did. Hmm. And why Why did that happen? Right. Um, and I don't have a great answer to that. I think in some cases it was publishers were looking for what they could republish cheaper. Um, and sometimes the not very best illustrations got republished. Um, but, you know, in Esperanto, you probably don't, it, it probably doesn't matter what uh, illustrations you use, but in other languages... It does. Well, I suppose it also speaks to, you know, why stories last, because, you know, they endure as timeless bridges that sort of connect us and connect generations and cultures and experiences. And, you know, Alice just happens to work, as you mentioned, Japan, I think, has the most editions of Alice in Wonderland of any country. Is that is that a stat I read somewhere? But um, that could it could be the Japanese and the Russians. Those, those two in countries in particular have a very deep interest in probably for very different reasons, but both have very uh, strong number of editions. I mean, but the larger question is, you know, stories in general, I mean, stories that are generational that we hand down and, and handing down, we're sharing a piece of. Um, cultural connection to us, um, to somebody else who then's taking it and reinterpreting it for for their kid. Well, and I, th I think part of it goes to the absurdist 
surrealistic nature of the books, or at least they've been appropriated. Yes. Appropriated by surrealists and absurdists. And each generation thinks that it is the first generation that has dealt with the complexities that it's had to deal with and the topsy-turvy nature of what's going on in, in its world. And that's why Alice continues to be relevant because it was happening in the Victorian age. It's happening today and it's happened in every decade in between. Um, it's just been different, but you know, the surrealist illustrators, for example, or if you look at some of the very early films, they're very surreal. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, that's why I think that that these things last is because you can pull out these elements that are so peculiar, mm -hmm. um, but they're timeless. Timeless. Yeah, I think that's very true, how timeless it is. And you can interpret it in so many different ways. So, which is why I, I think there's... 320 million views or videos of Alice in Wonderland stories or material on YouTube. I mean, that's, that's kind of remarkable. <laughs> I actually didn't know that number, but that's, that is remarkable. It, it is. I mean, I have it somewhere. It's, it's 320,000, 320 million times on YouTube content has been, has been um, uh, viewed. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but there's six million Wikia views of Alice-related pages. Oh, yes. Okay. I, I didn't know the specific number, but, you know, when we talk about illustrations, by the way, there are about 1,800 illustrated, fully illustrated editions, illustrators who have worked on fully illustrated editions. But the number of people who have illustrated a single, put one thing up on the line, right. a single illustration or even put up multiple, but they never got published in a book. Those are incalculable, I think. I've put up a couple of those pages, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and they probably wound up on Pinterest someplace too. <laughs> I also... Even without your permission. <laughs> yeah, for sure, without my permission. I also spoke at one of your events, but it was... I don't know, it was probably eight, nine years ago in New York, whenever, uh, when you had a, I went to a Lewis Carroll conference and, and spoke and showed my artwork and the various, um, the various books, graphic novels I was working on. And I've hired a lot of different concept artists, mostly people who've worked in Hollywood. And it's been really interesting to work with them and see how they interpret and they're and they're looking for something that's familiar but they want to make it wholly their own and they certainly want to make it part of the looking glass wars my book series but there's always a nod there's always a little detail there's always something for you know fans of the uh the original text and the original books and so i'm always looking to uh to do that even if i've made up all sorts of stories about <laughs> <laughs> your society and you know so the premise of i'm going to come to another lewis carroll uh, uh i don't know if people know that he has a diary he had many diaries and uh there are missing pages from his diaries mm -hmm. and there's all sorts of speculation about 
And some of it has to do with those photographs that he took of young Alice and that the parents were unhappy and things like that. I dismissed that. And I said the reason that he ripped out those pages is because Alice Little was actually Alice Hart from my series. And he didn't want people to know <laughs> that he co-opted her story. I mean, granted, he thought she was traumatized from being on the street as an or orphan. So there's little details that I've picked up over the years of, I'm no scholar, but I'm like, oh, I could use that. I could repurpose that. That'll be good metafiction. I'm giving away all my secrets here to you, Arnold, that I used. But uh, well, thank you. <laughs> you just have a tendency. It's doubtful he ripped out those pages, by the way. It's more likely that his heirs ripped out those pages. So is is that the, uh, I think Will Brooker wrote about that. I think he mentioned um, in his novel, in his, in his book about Alice that, or Lewis Carroll. It's just interesting that where do those pages go and what were they about? There was a riff between Alice Little and, yes. and Charles Dodgson over something. I don't know if anyone's figured out really, if there's any proof, if they know what it was about. Well, the original riff was between actually Alice's mother and Dodson. Right. And um, I think that less and less, of course, one of the films that had take, does an interesting take on it, I'm sure you've seen The Dream Child. Yes, of course. You know, wholly fictional, but what a great film. <laughs> yeah, that, that really went outside uh, of the books and, and, and found a way to tell the story that was edgy and of its era. The reenactments of the scenes with her in them with the uh, Jim Henson's workshop. Mm, yes. Um, um, just brilliantly done. By the way, there was a photograph of Alice when she's 18 or 19 or 20 that Lewis Carroll took, and she looks very um, she looks very unhappy. What is the story behind that photograph? Do you know? I don't know a lot about it. Um, she so two things. In most Victorian photographs, people look unhappy for a reason. The exposure time was so long uh, that you could not hold a smile for very long. And so rather than do that, they just said, hold it. Um, because if they move their mouth, if, if, if you started with a smile and little by little, it was going to go down, it would almost be like the Cheshire cat smile, little by little, but you're going to see it disappear. And, and so now, now that's different between the mouth and the eyes. But the eyes, I, I, you know, I, she probably... When she got married, she did not have the happiest marriage in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so whether that might have been part of what's being reflected in that. And of course, Victorian childhood, going into adulthood, there was this kind of hard break. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you're not a child anymore. You have to behave in a very certain way. Of course, Carol was making fun of that in, in the books. But that was very true. That's that's the way they were raised. And so I I think that would probably also help explain why in that photograph hmm. uh, she she had left left behind her childhood. And it's but she lived to a ripe old age. Yeah, she <laughs> did. She did. She traveled here um for some for a celebration in the it was, 20s? Yeah, 75th anniversary oh, um, of the novel. Um, 
uh, publication of, of the book, of the first book, and it was at Columbia University. Uh, so uh, Lewis Carroll gave us a lot of interesting um, words and terms, uh, obviously down the rabbit hole. He didn't invent rabbit holes, but he made it a portal. Wonderland, I don't believe he invented that either, but it's certainly he invented that it's a magical place you know, curiouser and curiouser, but there are a lot of more obscure uh, and words that he invented that are in culture today. Why don't you give us a couple of them that are not so well known, share with people? Well, Jabberwocky certainly has quite a lot of those. Frabjuous Day. Frabjuous um, Day, yes. Frabjuous. Frabjuous. Frabjuous, um, yes. Day. Which is a fabulous yeah. day. Right, and Brillig. You know, just Brillig. the opening. Yeah. Brillig and the slidey toves. I mean, there's hardly anything in that opening verse that he didn't make up. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, Humpty Dumpty has to explain what every one of those words mean. If you string along Humpty Dumpty's whole explanation, it still doesn't make any sense, <laughs> <laughs> which I've tried to do multiple times. And it's kind of like a, it's Humpty Dumpty gives this whole long explanation. And it's kind of like he explains each word, but it doesn't make a sentence when you get to the end of, of his description of it. So, so yeah, I think there is certainly the Vorpal sword mm-hmm. is that it's you know he, i've made that into a really great weapon mm-hmm. yeah i mean so so there are lots of those things that um he either made up or he popularized in a way that they they would not have um no one would know them today wasn't um cary grant no, who was Humpty Dumpty in that 1930? W.C. Fields. W.C. Fields, yes. The 1933 yeah. <laughs> Um Cary Grant was in it, and now that you said that, I'm trying to remember which character he was. The White Knight was Gary Cooper. God, who was Cary Car- Grant is in it? I'm going to have to try and remember. Okay, I, so I so many times. Okay, so if you were cast in that movie, who would they cast you as? Well. It would be the the White Knight. The White Knight. Why? Um, I love the concept of it's my own invention. Hmm. I was uh, in in my work life. I would always come up with these off the wall solutions, and always felt like it's my own invention. It, I mean, it makes no sense to anybody else, and it's kind of like, why would we do that? <laughs> um, but I still thought it was a good idea. Um, so I've always associated myself, and of course, the older I've gotten, and now in old age, um, I associate myself with uh, the White Knight even more. The that whole, and of course, Carol himself associated himself with the White Knight. That that's who he. Oh, that's that's his his essentially self portrait of himself as a character, not necessarily the illustration, but as a character. I didn't I didn't realize that. Well. I think that is a perfect place to end this very compelling and enjoyable and fun conversation. I, uh, I thank you for being on the show and sharing all your insight. Um, often I have folks on that, you know, have dabbled a little bit in Alice and, you know, some like there's some folks that are doing a musical of the Mad Hatter and, and, but really to have a, 
a, a full understanding and we could we could do this for hours uh, uh, and um, you're very engaging um, uh, guest. So thank you very much for that. I really I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Okay, okay. thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?